0: I'm Shelby. And I'm Janine. We are the hosts of We, we Art Here. We talk about art. I introduce the history on an art subject.
1: And I interview an artist tied to that art subject. Keep listening.
0: Our interview in this episode was with Ben Huminick an educator, and cartoonist. While talking to him, we discussed the incorporation of comics in the classroom. As an English teacher, he talked a bit about the ways he'd like to include his passion for comics more in his curriculum. So, for this episode's history and overview, we thought it'd be interesting to look more into the topic. On a broad historical scale, the use of images to communicate and get concepts across has been used for thousands of years, dating back to ancient times with the use of hieroglyphics. Images can cross language barriers, conveying information without relying on words, which you can see on emergency information cards and signs across the world. When it comes to the world of education, artist Will Eisner utilized the graphic format as a way to teach servicemen in the Army how to perform maintenance on equipment in a periodical published from 1951 to 1972. He helped to produce further graphic instruction materials for the government and other businesses from RCA Records to New York Telephone, netting Eisner the title of Father of Educational Comics. The use of comics in the classroom has been a matter of debate for decades. While there are plenty of people championing for the use of comics in education, in 1944, Child Study Association of America director Sidoni Grunberg is quoted as saying, there is hardly a subject that does not lend itself to presentation through the medium. And... Admittedly, I'm inclined to agree, but then again, I am a huge nerd with an Into the Spider-Verse poster on her bedroom wall at 23, so take that as you will. On the other side of the issue, psychiatrist Frederick Wortham speculated that the use of comics represented, quote, an all-time low in American science. Educators against the use of comics saw its use as a harbinger of illiteracy, impeding reading comprehension, imagination, and caused strain. Wortham also went on to write a 400-page assertion titled The Seduction of the Innocent in 1954, which accused comics of promoting violence, racial stereotypes, rebelliousness, and homosexuality. So let's move forward a bit, since from the 1950s, comics in the classroom were a bit taboo. That said, the 1970s saw educators bring back comics in the classroom with a series of educators using it in their curriculum. Robert Schoof found that the medium was useful in language arts in teaching dialect and characterization. So K. Howgard and Constance Olonghi put forward the idea of using comics with reluctant readers. In 1978, Pendulum Press published The Illustrated Format, An Effective Teaching Tool, which is pretty much what it says on the tin. A primer on how to use comics to teach. Once again, skip forward a few years to the 90s. While there are plenty of notable comics and graphic novels released by this point that stood on their own as works of literature and art, to give a few examples, Watchmen and dipping over into the Japanese manga side of things Akira was being published around this time. The tipping point that gave comics credibility in many eyes was the release of Maus, The novel is a biography based on author Art Spiegelman's father and his experience as a Holocaust survivor, and the book itself is the first, and currently only, comic to win a Pulitzer Prize in the year 1992. Now I say this is a real tipping point because this seemed to finally gain recognition for comics for many as something worth using in education a medium that could be used to say something and go beyond the stereotypes of spandex clad heroes. Since the 90s, there have been plenty of graphic novels forming the beginnings of a literary canon, such as Understanding Comics, Funhome, and Persepolis. One of the key benefits in utilizing comics in education is the visual aspect of the medium. In the context of an English class, for instance, it can motivate reluctant or beginning readers. Stephen Carey, a second language learner specialist, explains that, quote, the dramatically reduced text of many comics make them manageable. Comics and graphic novels give students the opportunity to experience text with images to enhance the usage of symbolism, point of view, puns, and humor in ways that might not easily come across in the text. The graphic medium can help present older texts in new ways that might be more appealing to students. For usage beyond English classes, take a look at what spawned the graphic novel, illustrated instructional material. In that way, comics can be used in more STEM-oriented classes, as, for example, lab instructions or a way to convey concepts like in physics. To put a bow on this segment and wrap everything up, the use of comics and graphic novels in classroom settings is not anything new or necessarily revolutionary. It's grown to be more and more a part of curriculum in the past. 30 to 50 years. And one thing that I think is a good takeaway is that it's not a replacement for different pieces of literature. It's really a supplement. It's a way to engage students and get them interested in the text. And honestly, that's a good thing. I mean, just listen to the interview we do with Ben. He can explain it much better than I ever could.
1: I got an email. He said he was having difficulty joining, but mm-hmm. since he was able to join... Uh, oh, he's coming back in. Oh, okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I emerged from the abyss. Um, I don't <laughs> know. My computer may have been a little bit overwhelmed. I may just keep the camera off to reduce the bandwidth, if that's okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. that's
2: good. Okay, yeah. fantastic. I, I've heard that helps with recording, too, so maybe that'll be a benefit. <laughs> and I see Shelby's got the end of the Spider-Verse poster in her room, so that's... Yes. That's more power to you, that's awesome. <laughs> it's
0: it's probably one of my favorite movies uh from the ten the twenty tens. Mm, yeah,
2: absolutely. That's uh what what um what was one of the things that stuck out to you about it? Um and then I also I see Janine's musical equipment, so you, clearly all are very creative people here. But um yeah, what what did you love about Spider Verse?
0: Um, I mean I'm kind of a tertiary like s- spider fan um (laughs) um but like i'm i'm also like a huge animation like what's the word enthusiast Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. so just the the animation style and the comic bookiness aesthetic and everything Mm -hmm. just like really popped out to me i'm like uh yes need to see that and so Mm-hmm. did opening night it was amazing and oh, wow yeah
2: <laughs> so even from a craft perspective like the fact that they animated it on the twos you're like oh this is just so cool
0: yes and i'm like i don't know if you care about video games or anything um mm-hmm. but like spider-man miles morales is coming out like yeah. next week mm-hmm. and they released they they should like they showed off there's a, a spider-verse suit in the game that animates on
2: the twos in oh, that's game. And I, that's, that's cool. <laughs> that is so neat. And uh, it's, it's neat that like Sony can kind of do that and overlap between their animation and their games production. That's like really tight. Wow. And then Janine, is that, are those two guitars that I see in the background there?
1: Uh, yes. It's uh, just an electric and an acoustic.
2: That's awesome. So clearly y'all both have some like creative pursuits here. Do you, do you write and play your own music or, or you know, what's kind of your investment there?
1: I have written some things, but I'm yeah, just for myself, I guess.
2: And that's great. No, that's awesome. Yeah, um, I've got a whole bunch of Star Trek spaceships in the background where I'm at, so I, you know my proclivities are on display too, right? <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of a fun thing about having a room to to you know to work in. So that's good.
1: Yeah. Um. So I guess since we were kind of talking about like uh, Spider Verse and mm-hmm. like kind of how it's like uh, it was like a comic book style film yeah Um, and since you work on like graphic uh, novels Mm -hmm. what were some of like how did you kind of get into start um, doing that or working in it
2: I, I I feel like I was kind of swimming in a stream of comics as a kid without realizing it um when I was coming up in the 90s uh I was born in 1986 and um newspaper cartoons were you know still um still in a place where there was some cool experimentation with like Calvin and Hobbes or the far side or or, you know Garfield was still a really legitimately funny strip but Dilbert was in its very early days and um so I remember reading like just collections of newspaper comics um as a kid especially Calvin and Hobbes and just loving that stuff and um you know, occasionally coming across a comic book and just being amazed at, like, you know, the 90s and all of the, like, deep rendering and crosshatching that artists <laughs> would use back in that time period. But um, for me, it was uh, in sixth grade, a friend of mine started bringing this, like, toy magazine to school called Toy Fair. And uh, every issue had this, like, humorous, sarcastic photo comic called Twisted uh, Mego Theater, which was, like, a forerunner to Robot Chicken, like some of the creative team who made those photo comics. Then went on to do the robot chicken type things with action figures and like seeing uh, those photo comics and like the humor that was involved in them really got me kind of jazzed about that, that format of telling stories. And uh, that same year I started getting into Spider-Man actually uh, and and reading uh, that character and that just kind of triggered a lifelong love for initially Spider-Man himself um, and then going to college finding a copy of Scott McCloud's understanding comics in my university library and just having my, my mind blown in terms of, Whoa, you know, this, uh, this medium can be broader than just newspaper comics or superhero stories. Like there's a variety of legitimate things that you can say with comics. Um, And that just got me so hyped. So, um, you know, college was really the place where it started to stick. And uh, I was a campus cartoonist for my paper for a period of time. Um, That was some great opportunity to, to work and to practice and explore the field. And, uh, Uh, You know, I've just been lucky to have some opportunities to continue to play in that sandbox since then.
0: Um, So you talk about being a a campus cartoonist. Uh, What kind of like comics were you doing around that time?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So where I was at, I was at at Baylor University at the time, and um, I was hired as the editorial cartoonist for the campus paper, The Lariat. And um, at that point, I... I was not a person who was fostering strong political opinions to share, if that makes sense. Um, I'm like, I'm like an Enneagram nine, like peacemaking is my preference. I I don't want to stir the pot per se. Um, But what I would do is I would sit in with the editorial board. And as they decided their stances on various issues, whether it was campus related, state related, or nationally related, I would then uh, draft versions of editorial cartoons to go with their editorials, right? So they would be hand in glove. Um, But during my uh, senior year, I managed to um, get permission to do an independent study as well uh, with one of the journalism advisors, uh, who let me do my own like uh, serialized strip. And it was, you know, close to home. It was about a, you know, a, a three college roommates who were kind of goofy and they were luckless in love and their dating lives weren't great and you know just kind of how they navigated that. Um, and it was called Godspeed, and and it was fine. But um, for me, it was a chance to play with continuity and characters for the first time with a with an audience and to uh you know to see that some people responded to that and i really 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 liked that opportunity so um you know between those two i felt like i got a good grounding in comics and got encouragement got feedback and went through a process of being edited and i think that prepared me to eventually um you know respond to some freelance opportunities uh and to and to draw at length like stories of more than just a few pages or you know a few strips at a time um so at that point i was doing some spot illustrations for um, just really like small gigs. Um, I, uh, i worked with a Christian summer camp and they needed someone to illustrate pages for their Bible studies. So I was doing some of that work, um, occasionally illustrating for like local community papers, um, mostly from lariat contacts who had gone on to other jobs. And, um, I was also a high school teacher. So that was my, that was my day job and the, in the majority of my income. And in 2011, um, I was told by my mother, of all people that she knew someone who needed a graphic novel drawn. And I was like, what? (laughs) Uh, She was a a criminal justice professor at a local university in my hometown. And um, she had a colleague who knew a person who worked with, um, a recovery program in Houston called Bridges to Life, and what Bridges to Life wanted to do was to take their uh, their 11-step curriculum for restorative justice and to adapt it into a graphic novel to be used with their with their um, juveniles, because they were like our you know our our teenagers don't want to do a workbook right now, but they would definitely read a comic, and if the comic story was built on the 11 steps that we take, that would be cool. So um, I got in touch with Kirk Blackard, the person who had been putting the project together. Um, he had been a corporate lawyer for Shell. Um, he had a heart for um for people in recovery for people who could be restored um who, who he didn't want to see their lives upended by um by one mistake or by uh, an adverse justice system so um he and I worked together on um this book called Making It and it took me about 2 years to draw it he wrote the story and developed the characters and the dialogue and, and all, all of the story creation was him and it was my job to design the characters and illustrate the world and I mean to be honest y'all like I didn't even know how to draw like Two point perspective when I started the book, like I was learning a lot of skills on the fly, and and you can kind of look through the pages and say, okay, well this is the period where Ben was reading like Moebius for the first time because he's drawing every little pin line like super precise and sketchy, or you know this is the point where he's reading this comic. But um, you know it, it was a cool product. Um, as a person of faith, um, the program used some of those, uh, some of those principles that were friendly to my religion, and so I was excited that like my my ethos uh, got to be woven into that kind of project as well. Um, and it was neat, you know, so I, that took me through 20, um, 2013. Uh, the book was published independently through create space on Amazon and used in that program. And then I began making a series of mini comics to just kind of sell at local shows, uh, like scene fest Houston or staple in Austin. I was trying to work the independent comic circuit a little bit and get to know other cartoonists and find places to show off my work. And, um, in 2015, I began noodling around with an idea for for a web comic that I could put online at length and then tell a story, um, and I was really inspired to kind of play around with um, some of the stuff that Windsor McKay had created in his comic strip Little Nemo in Slumberland, which is uh, y'all are probably familiar with it really well. It's a, this early 1900s strip with Art Nouveau style drawing and just these wonderful like landscapes and perspective work. And I can't draw anything like McKay, but I, I wanted to kind of play with that world a little bit and. And, uh, and explore the idea of his princess character. What would happen if she continued to be outgrown by the playmates that she that she spent time with? You know, what if she was a Peter Pan type character who was left behind? Uh, and, and what would she do to um, to keep one of those relationships alive even after, you know, that kid started growing up? So that was the impetus for a story called Waking Life, uh, which I did with Comicer Press. They're a small publisher out of uh, Minnesota. Uh, we were able to do two volumes of the book uh, serialized um, as a webcomic, uh, and also in in digital chapters that we put on Comixology and Kindle. Um, the first volume is in print as well, and the second volume is complete, uh, but hasn't been collected as a print volume or a digital volume uh, at this point. But um, is something I'd certainly like to do, and uh, and yeah, that that you know led me to a place where I got to work on one or two more uh, illustration and graphic novel projects, and um, eventually got connected with. Um, with two different agents and we're kind of pending on seeing if um, two pitches that I'm attached to, if one of those might get picked up. So, you know, at this point it's kind of a waiting game, but uh, if you told me, you know, 10 years ago uh, when I was first starting a graphic novel for juvenile delinquents, that, that things would be at this place, I would be completely elated and delighted to know that, that I'd still had opportunities to make stories. It's just a real thrill. Um, You know,
0: kind of going back to uh, working at Baylor and uh, everything, It sounds like there's like a lot of service involved in in your work. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, how do you feel like that's, does that like influence a lot of your your themes?
2: I think it does. Um, uh, The stories that I find myself telling most often involve people with good intentions, trying to go their own way and realizing that they're not successful without the help of community. Um, I think, you know, for myself growing up um, in, in a smaller town in Texas where I had kind of more of a creative bent or like a, you know, like the humanities type stuff. Um, you know, not everyone that I went to high school with felt, felt the same way or pursued the same things. And so, you know, sometimes I'd feel kind of like a square peg. Um, Baylor was a place where I really began to find community that I felt like I resonated with, you know, in that regard. And, um, I think that sense of wanting to belong, like having a strong feeling or propensity towards something, but also wanting belonging and connection really continues to play itself out in the stories that I personally get to create. Um, and yeah, service is a huge part of that because it's by by giving yourself and your time and your and your resources away that you actually find that fulfillment and that meaning. Um, I think that's absolutely true.
0: Yeah. And just just out of my personal curiosity yep. uh, uh what uh where where did you grow up?
2: Uh, it was a town called Brownwood, which uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Brownwood. It's uh, kind of in the middle of the state. It's uh it's got twenty thousand people. It's not it you know it's not like a um like really, super really small <laughs> super small yeah certainly you know not quite like um uh, where y'all are up at up the road but um uh it, definitely a friday night lights kind of vibe if you can picture that right like yeah. on friday night the town shuts down we go to gordonwood stadium the brownwood lions play like it is the jam um you know we've got 3m and kohler plants out there we've got a lot of ranching um people make a good living um just kind of, kind of doing working class uh, and blue collar jobs in Brownwood. And, and that's a wonderful thing, but we also have a small uh, Baptist university there where my parents both ended up working for a period of time. So um, it was a place that really formed my values um, and, and a place that had strong community. Um, but, you know, I, I think when I hit college, I was like, well, I could, I could do college here, but to go to another town and kind of expand a little bit would be, would be great. Like that was something I was craving. So I chose Waco, I mean, <laughs> which, which at that point had not yet been fixer uppered yet, uh, but, but was a way bigger town than I'd ever been in and uh, you know, kind of helped me expand my horizons uh, a lot, especially in terms of the people that I met and the world views they brought to the table, uh, which was pretty cool. I
0: was just curious, uh, mm-hmm. wondering if it was close to where I
2: was from. I, I oh, grew up in go- Caldwell. <laughs> oh, gotcha. That's fantastic. Okay. So kind of like West Central Texas type stuff.
0: Yeah. Like mm-hmm. just down the road from College Station.
2: That's awesome okay, gotcha and 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 yet you decided that you would go to Huntsville right uh, and um, and not go to a m yeah, uh,
0: just initially, I was doing theater and
2: oh cool yeah <laughs> well and from what I understand with with Sam Houston, there's such a strong humanities program that you all have got that I think people sleep on if that makes sense, like even in terms of uh bringing national book award winners in to speak and do programs like there's there's really a lot going on
0: it's been a little uh. I guess slower now. It feels like it's been slower because sure. everything was here.
2: Uh, COVID and whatnot.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, which I guess kind of brings me to my next question. Mm-hmm. Uh, how have you been working on your craft since everything's shut down?
2: Oh, much more slowly. Thank you for asking. Um, I think, at, you know, I'm, I'm still a high school educator. And so that side of um, life has changed with COVID because um I'm in a school where we teach in person and virtually, and so about, I'd say one-third of my students, maybe a little bit more, I don't see in person on a regular basis, but they still need to um, be helped with questions, and they still need work and assignments, and so my school day flows out of its um, its boundaries a little more than it used to, which um, it, it makes it tough to find time for the work, so right now, I'm working on an anthology story. It's 10 pages long. It's due at the end of the month, and I'm only partway through the penciling. Uh, you know, I, I have to pick up the pace, but um, but creating that has taken more of a backseat compared to serving my students and serving my family. So it is slower. And I think when when um, in March it became clear that I would not be returning to campus uh, and that my students would be working virtually, I kind of panicked because I was like, man, this, this changes my plans for, for comics, right? Like this is something I really want to have some traction with and what do I do with it? And um, I think confronting that, that fear and understanding that I was actually tying a lot of my personal value to making stuff um kind of help me say okay i can put this in its proper context right now like my value as a human is not just based on the things that i make right uh, there's so many more factors to that and if that's the case then comics can still be a part of my life even if it's not as significant in this moment because i'm confident that there will be a chance for it to be so again um so i think I, i've made some peace with that and um and there's some waiting too I, you know there are uh Two projects that I'm hoping to hear back on that um, that are with agents that have been shopped around to publishers. If one of those gets uh, gets picked up, then, then certainly I've got new work on my plate that I'll make time for. Uh, but until then, you know, it's kind of neat to have a, a little bit of a spot to rest and to wait and just kind of slowly work on one thing and uh, and, um, and and maybe be a little less fussy and precious about it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if y'all can relate. You know, certainly. Uh, with the courses you're taking and the things you're working on. I I'm sure there's there's probably some overlap there, correct?
1: Um I know when you were just talking about like um kind of like where your values lie, like with um I guess like working on comics and then your family as mm-hmm. well as like taking care of your students. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's like that's that's something I'm kind of like dealing with right now. Um I'm a student but I also do um Well, we both work uh but I also work at like Lone Star College Mm -hmm. um and I like doing that work but I just feel like it's it's difficult to figure out like where your value like where to place your value Mm -hmm. I don't know because like value and purpose is kind of maybe I'm just the only one having these (laughs) kind of weird problems I but um I'm working on it but um yeah just when you said that I was like it's good to hear that you've kind of like come to peace and like figured yeah. out where your values are. Mm.
2: Um, yeah. Oh, I think it's real. And um, I don't know. I, I there, There's a concept of idolatry, right? That I've got this like mm-hmm. physical object that gives me value that maybe gives me purpose or this, or this artifact, so to speak. And uh, I, think, I think for artists in general, our art can become an idol um, when, you know, the reverse makes for the most successful art when, when our lives are in the right place, um, and when we're we're investing in the things that we create because we've got the value to give it instead of it has the value to give to us. I mean, certainly well-made art can can give a lot back to us. I, I don't deny that whatsoever. But um, yeah, we're we're not art machines, <laughs> you know, and um, and I think for us to be properly whole people, really, leads us to make the best stuff. But I think it's cool, Janine, that that you know that and and that you're navigating that too, because I mean, I'm, I'm 34. I, I've, I'm at a place in my life where there's a lot of balls in motion and I'm figuring this out. You are uh, at the cusp of the things that you're creating and you're already considering this and nailing it down. And what an advantage you've got, I think to, to be processing this already.
1: Uh, kind of what you were just talking about again, like kind of the balance between, I guess, creating art mm-hmm. and whatever you like define that as um mm. could you talk a little bit more about maybe like the relationship that you have with um the art that you create
2: yeah i i think mentioning earlier like i'm, I'm a peacemaker right like conflict is not something that i love it's something that if i uh, if i give in my worst impulses i flee from and i don't resolve and um and part of being being an adult being a parent being a husband has has looked like dealing with that and finding good um good behaviors and good strategies to address that and with stories you don't have a narrative without a conflict right like there must be something amiss that a character's got to deal with and grapple with and resolve or fail at resolving by the time the story's done um and one thing that i've been learning for a long time is how do i put my characters in a place where the conflict would genuinely upset them and improve who they are right what how can i keep from just having people be comfortable which i would like to be and actually have characters go through a transformative scenario and um there's a comics writer named brian bendis who actually was the creator of miles morales um uh in the comic books uh, with um the artist sarah kelly and um and he was an executive producer for into the spider verse and um and, and and i like bendis's approach to um, very dialogue-driven and character-driven comic books. And um, one thing that he talks a lot about is, is bringing truth to a character and being honest and being vulnerable uh, because that's the thing that's compelling. Um, and I think I'm only just now starting to grasp this idea that instead of coming up with a fictional conflict um, that may or may not have stakes, like thinking about the conflicts I faced in my life and reinventing those for a story and being a little bit fearless and maybe messy on the page and telling that truth Um, is going to be far more compelling to an audience. And um, maybe means I can be a little less precious. I think perfection is a way of like hiding from the audience and protecting yourself a little bit. Um, I think a little bit of deliberate messiness and vulnerability um, can actually have the opposite effect and can be such a powerful aspect of whatever work you create in any medium you create it. But it requires courage and And that's hard, (laughs) especially when people will see your babies and and be very honest about how they evaluate them. And you're like, no, can't you love my work as much as I do?
1: (laughs) I kind of had a question about, it's going back a little bit, um, but you were talking about that you're also a high school um, teacher. Um, What subject or do you teach a specific subject?
2: Yeah, no, God bless. I'm an English teacher, which means I am very annoying to many students, right? They (laughs) got to sit through that class. (laughs) Yeah. But we also have a a comics club that we've been doing on campus for the past few years. And um, before COVID came down the line, we were uh, creating a student anthology and and getting a table at Comic Palooza down in Houston. And so my students would get a chance you know, before the end of high school to create work and submit it and get it printed up and then try to sell it at a convention, which is a big part of of being an american comic artist that's 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 part of the circuit and kind of goes with the territory so um this year obviously um will be different we don't know if comic palooza will be a reality you know even in 2021 and it's fine if it's not but um we still want to give the students a chance to get together with like-minded kids and create stories and draw and just kind of see that that magic that comes from that kind of community so we're we're in the process of getting that off the ground for the second semester this year and that'll be happening pretty soon so there's crossover i mean uh my, my high school juniors that I teach, uh, not every one of them loves to read for fun. And I personally think they should. Uh, so I keep a lot of comics in my classroom because I found that's a pretty non-threatening way to get into a story. And it's a great way to build some confidence as a reader. Like you can knock out a graphic novel pretty quick. Um, I don't care who you are, right? Like you can get that language and get through a story. And, uh, and I think that gives my kids um, some real foundational um, kind of personal understanding to be like you know what i am a reader and there are lots of ways to read and if i find the one that works for me i can run that groove and i can really grow through that process
1: so what are your thoughts about um well i feel like i would know the answer but your thoughts about like um like i guess graphic novels being used in education yeah because i know that um like in my undergrad we read Mm -hmm. mouse yeah and um I was like, oh, another book. Actually, I like reading. But I'm like Uh, even more excited when I see that it's like a graphic novel. I'm like, oh, cool. Now I get to read this. And even in this podcasting class, we had a book. um, And I was like, oh, great. I have to read this. Because he was like, he asked us to read it maybe like within a week's time.
2: Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And I was
1: like, oh, this is a graphic novel. Cool.
2: Oh, uh, is it Jessica Abel's book?
0: mm -hmm,
2: Oh, what's it called again? It's like her history of radio or something?
0: Uh, On the – out on the wire. I have Out like on the nice wire.
2: <laughs> okay, that's awesome. I've read uh, Abel's La Perdida years ago, but I, I haven't read this one, and I know she's been doing more with nonfiction. That's it, has it been a benefit for you guys to, to be able to have that book and, and use it?
0: I mean, I think so. Um, but also, I'm a huge nerd who like finds that kind of history interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you've seen a lot of value of having comics in your educational experience. Is that is that accurate? Yes. Yeah. That's cool. So what are
1: you? thoughts
2: about it yeah um it's what are my thoughts about it i think they have a place in the classroom for sure um a lot of my teaching philosophy revolves around choice and uh, and goal setting and so for my students uh, we carve out time in their high school class to read regularly um 10 to 15 minutes a day and so i want them to to choose stuff they like and to read it and to give themselves notes on what they're reading and to kind of make some observations right about how fast they're going and what they're getting out of it. I want them to have a goal for how they're improving as readers. Um, And I think graphic novels are huge. I want them to be reading those comics. Um, As far as teaching it as a whole class text, that's not something I've done except for with my ESL students. Uh, Last year, we did American Born Chinese with Qin Yang. And that was fantastic because uh, I was working with a group of about six students at the time, and they had all immigrated to the United States from other countries. Um, And to read a story about the the immigrant experience and the way Yang depicts it in American-born Chinese, uh, you know, he's got three characters that are all essentially running from their heritage initially before embracing it and understanding that its, its uniqueness and strength was a benefit to the culture they were in. Uh, I think we got some really fruitful conversation out of that. So I've seen the power of having those in a classroom, having those be approachable texts, um, having those be texts that busy students with lots of extracurriculars and college pressure uh, can, can allot time to read and enjoy. I I would love to see more of it used in a classroom. Uh, I think the question is, you know, what what is the canon of graphic novels that we can go to, you know, regularly? Mouse is definitely on the list as a Pulitzer Prize winning book. There's no doubt. Um, A lot of people cite Watchmen uh, because of its complexity and density. It's just a fantastic novel. Um, And I think there are other books that can go with it too. But um, there's probably like a developing body of graphic novel canon that we're trying to figure out in education that'll allow for it to slowly become more of a central part of the curriculum and not just an optional part. Um, I'd like to see it be more of a central thing and less of an optional thing, but I'm happy to continue to make it a regular option for my students in the meantime.
0: Um, I guess kind of going off like that same topic, yeah. Uh, what are some of your favorite uh, comics, graphic novels, mm-hmm. and anything like that? Yeah.
2: Okay. So if I go to the desert island and I've got this waterproof trunk <laughs> and these comics could be in there, which ones are they? Um, I, I, I mentioned Watchmen earlier, and I know that's often brought up because it, it is such a quality piece, but um, man, that book rang a bell for me. Just the, the density of the story in the way that the text and the image making uh ironically played off each other and gave depth uh, I thought was fantastic I could reread that book and find new things every time so the the density and the craft in Watchmen I think is really compelling um the deconstruction of the superhero is is really interesting too but I think um there's been a lot of stuff that's followed up from Watchmen that have played along those lines so maybe the the message isn't as fresh but the the whole package the way it's put together and the, and the kind of storytelling it's doing is still really really potent to me um I would bring my complete Calvin and Hobbes collection because I love Bill Watterson's uh, sense of whimsy and, and optimism and his kind of critical and sarcastic eye as well. Uh, it's just a great piece of art that's uncompromising and is accessible and is, and is really fun. It gives us permission to all be a little bit of a wild kid with a big imagination. And um, I think I would, i want to bring the Daredevil comics uh, that Frank Miller did uh, up to the end of the 1980s because um i think that was that was a fruitful period for a young artist working in a pretty like prescribed system of comics making to try some new things and bring some new maturity to the medium um and and miller is a wild character now like some of the stuff that he creates is just like bro where are you going like <laughs> you're i think his ability to have a cohesive story has been really um changed in recent years but i still love the guy even if i don't love all of his personal assertions but um i think that daredevil period is just it's cool to see an artist come into his own and i think is a good template for the kinds of experimentation you can do within a conventional set of of storytelling rules Uh, and i like that 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 gives me momentum and motivation as well um so i mean it's kind of a shame because that leaves out pretty much anything that was created after 1995 um but um but those classics they're they're places where i feel like i can really set my feet you know um and stand
0: i mean like i think that's a pretty solid set <laughs> <laughs> sure
2: yeah well and there's some great modern stuff i mean you think about work that chris ware has been doing um or uh one i've heard a lot about and haven't gotten into yet is Emil ferris's um you know uh, i think it's oh oh is it i love monsters i'm in love with monsters it's like a ballpoint pen graphic novel looks super cool my favorite thing is what monsters yeah, it's called my favorite thing is monsters. That's what it is, and the second volume is due from uh, Fantagraphics later in this year. But that's the kind of like hybrid, um, you know, literary fiction slash um, avant-garde art storytelling that I think is really compelling for an adult audience. And uh, you know, all the all the people who are coming up reading manga and Raina Telgemeier and Dave Pilkey, like that stuff is excellent and exciting. And if they're ready for For things that challenge them even more with great complexity that only this medium can offer i think having stuff like that waiting in the wings and having more of it beyond just these kind of masters of the form would be a really really compelling thing so i think there's some homework for me to do in that arena as well because i'd love to know more about that vanguard
1: i know those um you mentioned watchmen and um i actually haven't read it i have the graphic novel yeah. And I even wrote like a paper about it, but I had never actually read all of it.
2: What? You wrote the um, paper without reading the book. Who does that? Who does that? You know what that says to me, Jeanine? It says to me that you are a survivor, right? Because that is part of going to college. You can faking your way through the book. I can't tell you how many times I did that myself. I absolutely hear you.
1: But it was like, I chose it. It was like yeah. a thing. So it wasn't like we had to pick that one, but, mm-hmm. um, it was interesting. Um, so I wanted to ask you, because um, I wrote about Watchmen and kind of, let's see if I can remember what I wrote about, but it was kind of like the political environment, I guess also mm-hmm. like the social environment of that time yeah. and yeah. how like it it was like kind of a reflection of that. What do you think about, um, I guess it could be like any type of art medium, um, but what do you think about um, it like kind of reflecting like, the social environment um because i know we kind of talked about maybe like how it um can be an expression of like our personal stories
2: mm-hmm.
1: um but what a, kind of about like the societal stories that it can tell
2: yeah i think um i think art worth its salt i think stories worth their salt will definitely reflect those times um and i think that the more artfully they do it the more power they've got to stay right uh I think about Shakespeare. He set um, Romeo and Juliet 200 years earlier than his own time, right? He's talking about Fair Verona back in the 1400s. He's writing as an Elizabethan um, playwright. And um, because he grounded in a specific time and place and his audience was aware of some of the cultural mores of like the warring Italian families, um, he was able to slip in some, some messages about uh, the England of his day. Uh, the nature of love and is that something that parents dictate or that you get to make a choice about Uh, the nature of defying authority which was a you know a big uh big perspective with with elizabeth's reign right he he was able to smuggle that in um i alluded to being a star trek fan one of the things that i think makes um those stories especially the original series and next generation stand the test of time is that they wrapped up their current societal concerns in metaphor right which allows it to be smuggled out of the 1960s or the 1980s to to a later audience, and with Watchmen, um, you know they created an alternate 1980s where Richard Nixon was still the president, um, and where the threat of the Cold War was much more intense than it was for the present-day audience who was reading the book. So I think, you know, if you're going to talk about your society, and I think you'd be wise to, you want to do it in a way where, um, it, where there's a little bit of a Trojan horse, right? Because no one wants a polemic, no one wants a lecture. Like, hey, here's the problem with our culture right now. <laughs> I think for it to be wrapped up in a story where the audience can kind of uncover that social uh, scenario and, and see the critiques uh, as part of the narrative makes it much more strong uh, and, and makes it stand the test of time, even for an audience that's not familiar with those concerns originally. Bless you, ladies. I, if, I'm a rambler, too, so if you just want to cut me off mid-sentence, you're welcome to do that because I'll just, I just kind of go a bit. <laughs> no,
0: this is <laughs> – thank you. These are, like – Great answers.
2: Okay, okay. I'm I'm glad it's a benefit then. That's good. Yeah.
0: I'm really enjoying
1: like this conversation as well as like the other ones. Mm -hmm. I feel like podcasts are like just a good way to just like have like kind of deeper conversations with people instead of just like, hey, how are you doing? Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's like an aside. So um, (laughs) I'll get back. I'll get back on track. Uh, uh, But one thing um, you kind of mentioned like, community and Mm -hmm. how um you kind of chose to uh go to a school a different school like kind of outside of your area and Mm -hmm. there you were able to build community yeah um so kind of what are the effects uh or like sorry hold on (laughs) um i know you said you're also an english teacher so how kind of is like your community, like your classroom community, Mm -hmm. how has that been working like in the current state, Um, like kind of virtual, maybe kind of also halfway in person, how has that been affected? Do you think it's been improved in some way by like Mm -hmm. having virtual or?
2: Um, I, I think if I were teaching all virtually, that would be a really cool opportunity to stretch myself in terms of the community we could build. Um, As it stands, doing a hybrid model, um, to be honest, my virtual kids probably suffer the most in that regard because um, I'm in a place where I'm creating content that I'm delivering to them and they're accomplishing assignments and sending it back for feedback and occasionally emailing if they have questions. So really, I'm a content generator and they're a content responder, and that makes it tough for community to exist. So they've not been having a great community experience from my course because, to be honest, that's not bandwidth that I've got right now. Like I just haven't been able to do it. Now, uh in the next semester our school is going to give us some flexibility. I'm actually going to be able to take some of my online students and consolidate them into a uh, like a a period during the day where I can zoom with a small group or where I can be more personal in terms of like the discussion board material I create and the videos that I proctor and the and the, and the responses that I ask for. Um as far as in the classroom, I think community is crucial for learning. Um, I tell my students, if you're talking, you're learning. Like they need to be able to process and dialogue with each other um, to really get the most out of my course, and, and those are the memories they're going to remember, right? Like I'm some dude who the state pays to like bring content to them and to and to try to teach it as um, compellingly as possible, but they're going to benefit far more from the friendships they make there, the disagreements they have charitably, uh, the critiques they get from each other. You know, we write as a community. I show students. Uh, examples of my scripts that have gotten editorial notes because I want them to have permission to make multiple drafts and to know that writing is a process it's not a single attempt Um, my students give each other feedback Uh, they give each other praise and suggested improvements Um, they dialogue about their thoughts after they journal Um, so I I think that's so so essential which is why it's a little bit heartbreaking for me to think about how I'm not giving that opportunity to my online students as much as I wish I could Uh, but if anything, ladies, it just kind of makes me look forward to um, whenever you know whenever things can be calmed down with this virus and I believe that day's coming uh, to when we can have a much more dynamic classroom environment where I can instead of making kids sit in rows for safety's sake put them in tables and force them to talk to each other again and watch that chemistry happen you know uh, where we can be much more interactive and move around and um, and and kind of have that that magic that rubs off from from having a really lively classroom environment instead of a much more contained but also necessarily healthy one so yeah it's uh i I, we got a little bit of the magic right now janine but i'm hoping for more uh you know as soon as it's safe to to make that possible
1: (laughs) then i can add another question about kind of the community um like is it do you prefer to be called a cartoonist and a, a graphic novelist or i'm trying to would the what would the community that you're a part of, in that way, what would you call it? Just be arts.
2: Yeah, I would say I would say I'm a cartoonist, um, and, and part of that community, which uh, which implies writing and drawing. Um, and I don't always do that for every story. Um, uh, the the two projects I'm waiting on right now, I would be the solely the artist on that one. But uh, but cartooning is really where my heart is, right? Where where it's the whole package. Um, so I, that's a community that I definitely enjoy and like being part of. Um, And then, yeah, I'd say education is the other professional community that I consider myself part of. And um, one of the great examples I had of that was a professor at Baylor, Dr. Tom Hanks, um, no relation to the actor, (laughs) who, um, ladies, he's the kind of guy who like would wear a fedora and take it off when he saw you, right? Like he would tip his hat (laughs) to you. He, He had somehow come wholesale from the 1950s with all of the genteel manners that entailed but also a strong sense of feminism. He was the total package and he was a medieval scholar and, and, um, and published and respected. And he would have very discussion driven classes where he would refer to his college students as colleagues. And it took me a little while to glom onto the fact that you don't call someone a colleague in academia unless they've got your same credentials, right? So for Dr. Hanks to call us colleagues, he was doing us uh, a great deference, right? To kind of bring us into his world. Instead of to put up a barrier and say like, well, I got the PhD and you're the plebs, so shut up and absorb everything I've got to say. Um, he modeled that community so well. And I think that couldn't help but be part of my DNA when I, when I got into the professional. So.
0: I I kind of like started there for saying because uh, my mom actually went to Baylor in the 80s. And oh she told me many stories about how she liked Tom Hanks.
2: Oh <laughs> <gasps> No way. Oh my gosh. Did oh, he, he retired in the past few years, so he's not teaching there right now, but um, gosh, that's so cool that she told stories about this dude. He's a legend. There is no question. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, then you get to tell your mom, Hey, I talked to some nonsense <laughs> dude today who wouldn't shut up. And guess what? Hanks was one of his teachers too.
0: <laughs> she also is an English teacher or was. No.
2: Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, bless Sometimes you there's my mom <laughs> yeah d- there's no way getting away from it right now <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome yeah that's so cool i mean is that something that that you feel that y'all have gotten a benefit from from some of your classes right now are, are you doing hybrid classes where they're partially online and partially in person are you able to be in a classroom right now
0: um i know one of one of our class i, I think we're t- both taking the same classes um only one of them is hybrid right now. Um, that's great. And even then, for the better part of the semester, the universe was conspiring to uh, not do face to face.
2: Oh gosh, that's hard.
1: So we've had two like in person, and it's so far it's just been me and another guy like in person, and then everybody else was, is on Zoom, mm-hmm. which is a little weird. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is still nice being in in person just it's like easier just to have like casual conversation it's that's more awkward Mm -hmm. on zoom i don't know i don't know why i guess people are i don't know it's just more awkward to have like those informal conversations
2: yeah i think with zoom you gotta wait to take turns right like there's that slight lag and if everyone jumps in at the same time it's chaos (laughs) but in a real room you can cut in and add on and remix like in the moment it's so much more dynamic yeah, I don't. Know. I don't think it's crazy to to see that difference. That's. I think it's valid.
1: So what is um, so kind of what is okay? I already asked you, but <laughs> like I guess your artistic community, mm-hmm. uh, kind of how is that? Um, how has it been in the past, and mm-hmm. how is it now? Is it? Are do you have any like competition, or mm-hmm. are you pretty friendly with each other?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I like how you're asking about competition there because i do think that's the way that we approach art communities sometimes Mm -hmm. and that can actually bring out a lot of great work um but i think at the end of the day like making friends like valid friends not like ladder climbing friends is one of the best things you can do for yourself and your craft um so i've got a couple of different pockets that i get to interact with um there's a group of dudes who uh uh, from tennessee and florida who i love dearly i consider them really good friends and we only get to hang out in person rarely but um they're cartoonists who um who are also like people of faith so we kind of share like two sets of values if that makes sense um and it's cool to talk about how those two uh, kind of streams of influence uh, work with each other so i always enjoy getting a catch up with uh with johnny jemison and with stephen hesselman my good friends there you know, so they're their real source of encouragement uh, and then I'm also, <laughs> I'm in a Twitter DM with some, with some up and comers right now. We call it comic book boys with a Z, um, because <laughs> we are really cool. Um, but, um, that's a place where we kind of give each other mutual encouragement. Like we update each other on our work. There's, there's about 10 or 11 of us. And we just kind of talk about projects in progress, what we're doing, what we're working on, um, share our Kickstarters in advance so we can kind of hype each other up, um, just kind of fell into a conversation a couple weeks ago about like being good parents because a couple of the guys have kids you know um so there's there's been some cool community there that's not just focused on the craft but the craft becomes the core and then I think um just through interacting with people online um and being intentional about it like that's led to some cool connections um one of the projects that I've been working on is a graphic novel called Ava and it's about um a young woman who operates in a wheelchair she's got uh, a genetic um situation where she's where her muscles have atrophied and um she works for a social or, sorry for a tech company and she she basically helps hack um like legitimate full-time virtual reality all already player one right like here's the software that lets us be in a digital world and create an avatar and just kind of hang out at infinitum and um she meets a boy in this virtual world and uh kind of starts a relationship but begins losing her physical world in the process she starts to neglect everything outside of this vr and so it's a romantic comedy but it's also a little bit sci-fi black mirror and um i got hooked up with kevin and our co-writer katie um because of a previous friend jordan who i'd worked with on a separate project he just kind of happened to recommend me and they they reached out and now you know we've been able to to take it to a literary agent who's trying to shop it around a bit so that kind of opportunity would not have been possible without just kind of floating the waters of social media and uh and seeing what kind of stuff people are making and to offer encouragement and to, to be jazzed about the same things. So I think people know when you're being genuine, whether that's in person or whether that's digitally. Um, I think genuineness is always in our interest when it comes to, to working uh, in a community. And I, I think the more that we can be looking out for each other and finding allies and, and lifting up um the folks that we're interacting with man I, I just think that a creates a more satisfying experience b leads to better art and c kind of works out in opportunities from time to time um not because you're being a, a mercenary just because people tend to be kind when you show kindness in, in that that comes around and that's really fun yeah i think it's crucial you got to have friends you can't just be in the tower making art man you'd be bored and sad and yeah that's no fun that stinks um
1: so how do you kind of like when you're working collaborative? curl whatever <laughs> i'll try to say it again yeah. collaboratively collaboratively people um like you just mentioned on um like you were working with people on ava mm-hmm, how that's do you right. all um work on that like are you do you like sketch things
0: mm-hmm.
1: mostly like digitally like on a computer and then mm-hmm. people kind of share it that way or how does that work
2: yeah yeah i think that's much more the workflow that you see now um and even if someone is a is a traditional artist like at some point their material is going to have to be converted into a digital format for kind of modern file sharing and stuff but yeah pretty much what you described um kevin and katie um wrote the script for ava and they they, they've got the entire pitch and uh, my job was to illustrate the first five pages for the sake of you know showing it around and getting interest so um they uh they gave me the material, and I came up with an initial like, loose sketch of what the pages could look like, to which they gave feedback and uh, suggestions and corrections. And then we took it into a polished sketch that had that I did digitally on a Surface Pro uh, tablet computer with a pressure-sensitive pen using uh, – I think Adobe Fresco is what I'm working with right now. A little bit of Clip Studio, too. And um, we basically started working on the pages until we got the line art to the place where we liked it, or we got the lettering to look the way we wanted it to, or we got the color palette right and um continue to tweak it a bit until we started sharing it around to people who could help represent it and um uh they also wrote some character descriptions and i actually drew the sample illos for those just in my sketchbook with with ink and brush which is so fun um i don't know if you've played with brush pens or if that's something you regularly use but oh my gosh that's like cathartic and uh and then i scanned those and colored those so you know it's crazy most of this this work so far has been done digitally but a little bit had that traditional start and um and it's fun to be able to still keep that as part of the process too.
1: Do you ever have any overlap with that, like um, turning like like sketches into like moving images?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, so myself, no. I've I've never animated my own work. Um, the closest I came was I think like I was a junior in high school and I started playing with PowerPoint and tried to like do like very limited animation through advancing slides and it was terrible uh <laughs> but i also had like a mouse in microsoft paint so what, what did i know um i will say i bought um richard williams uh animator survival guide this past summer and uh mm-hmm. and williams was uh and he was a student of some of the nine old men from disney and um was the lead animator on who framed roger rabbit and he kind of created a working document for um for new animators especially in the 80s when you know the disney renaissance was just getting kicked off and people needed some on-the-job training his whole you know set of principles on how to do squash and stretch and how to do timing and how to adjust it um was really illuminating for me i think um the closest i would come to animation would be storyboarding uh, which is essentially just making your comic before you turn it into the in-betweening but um I think that without a good set of storyboards and without a good comic that has a lot of life to the character and a, a good sense of motion and a good line of action, um, you know, you don't get good animation if you don't have that good plan first. And I think my work is getting increasingly closer to a place where it would work as a storyboard instead of a set of stiff drawings, right? Like I want those drawings to have life, and I think animation principles definitely uh, matter um, even for static comics if you really want them to pop. But yeah, as far as, like, animating stuff in Clip Studio, I just don't have time. God bless. Like, I would love to. That'd be so great. It'd be so great. Oh, my gosh.
1: So if someone had, like, uh, like an idea for, like, a graphic novel or a story, yeah. um, but they, uh, they wouldn't, let's just say they have, like, no experience with actually, like, I guess, following through and crafting it, um, mm-hmm. what would you kind of... What, what would you tell them to kind of start off
2: doing? Yeah, I think the best advice I've heard on this, and I agree with it, and I didn't follow it, but it's the best <laughs> advice, is to start small. Um, your 200-page epic graphic novel um, is an awesome thing that you should make someday, but uh, if you're getting your feet wet in the medium, start small with, um, with one page, two pages, four pages, uh, short, punchy pieces where you can tell a story or depict a quick scenario. Um, and, and where you can get comfortable doing that, where you can really get the bones of your storytelling down. I think another encouragement is that cartooning is way less about drawing impressive pictures, and is much more about drawing with a consistent visual vocabulary. And, and I know that's such an English teacher thing to say, but um, I think of a comic called XKCD when I say this, and it, it's probably one you're familiar with already, and, and if the the people listening aren't Um, it's a stick figure comic that has been done online for years. um, And it jokes about math and and sociology and all kinds of other things, but the characters are stick figures, but because everything is drawn in a stick figure style and it's internally consistent, the story works. As soon as you get the visual vocabulary for it, you're lost in it. And, um, and, and the author behind that whose name escapes me at the moment has done some really inventive and immersive things, including having this slow burn animation that he did on his site where like a story was slowly uncovered in like five minute increments over like a 24 to 72 hour period. Some really cool experiments there. So, you know, you don't have to draw like um, a significant famous person like Jim Lee, who's beautifully um, rendered and hatched, you know, or uh, you don't have to draw like um, like an Alex Ross who paints his comics from, from models and they look photographic. Um, You can choose the most simple approach to depicting a character like you would see on a Cartoon Network show, for instance, and as long as you stay to your visual vocabulary, um, you can fill it with as much story meat as you want to, um, because the pictures are there to keep you moving through the story, not to be lingered on, right, unless you really deliberately want to do that. So I think people who want to tell a story with stick figures and get into comics have already got the equipment they need. If they start small, then they can build up their confidence and their skills from there, and then they can share it easily um, through twitter or instagram or um find a way to incorporate it into tiktok or you know god forbid they even use facebook you know <laughs> uh, reddit can spread it like wildfire there's so many ways to get it out there
1: that was kind of my next question you just answered it like oh gosh how do you okay. kind of uh i i just typed it out i just thought about it yeah. like generate income from it or i guess like get traction and i guess just sharing it
2: and... yeah and as someone who i would say you know, getting traction is one of the things I still struggle with here. And I wouldn't say that I've got a massive audience for my work at this point. You know, the, uh, the people who love and care about what I do the most are people who know me personally, uh, not people who just kind of ran across me online and committed to, to follow my stories. So I'm still developing in that sense. But the people I've seen be most successful, um, they do a couple things. They share work that they're passionate about, the kind of stuff they love. They, they don't share just what they think an audience wants to see. They share the kind of thing they love to make. Uh, And they tend to share that um, with audiences that would be interested in the same thing. So um, I think about like the success of a a webcomic like check please, which broke Kickstarter records. And now is like a successful graphic novel series from first second. Uh, Ngozi, the, the cartoonist behind that, she started off by running around Tumblr and sharing her stuff with Avatar, the last airbender fans or with supernatural fans, right? Like those were her fandoms and she was making fan art. And as people got drawn to what she just genuinely liked Uh, she introduced him to the story she wanted to tell and they found enough common cause to to rally around it and to love it, you know? Um, So I think that authenticity and what you make and sharing it with communities that would like it is super key. Um, I think in terms of making income, um, doing commissions is a great way to make some money. Um, You know, offering your services to draw what people want. I think it's important to have boundaries on what you will and will not draw based on who you are and kind of um, what your, what your guiding lights are. Um, But there's definitely a community out there that's willing to, to commission original art. And then I think sharing other people's stuff that you genuinely like, not just um, in some sort of self-serving way, but because you think that's genuinely got merit um, is also a good thing because that can create those bonds of community and, and develop kind of a network of mutual, uh, lifting each other up that can help get your work in front of other eyes. And that comes from a genuine place of passion and not just this like cynical place of promotion, if that makes sense and then I think one thing that still has value and and when it comes back in full force will be so cool to see again is the comic show, right. Or the, the convention where, um, you know, the audience might come to see a celebrity guest who used to act in some show in the nineties, but where if they walk artist alley, they might see your table and get to connect with you for a brief second over the things that you're making and that you love. And um, I, I think For a lot of artists, comic conventions are lost leaders where you go to maybe break even or at least justify your expenses. Uh, But more than that, you go to connect with other artists and connect with audience members and to slowly grow your presence. I think there's something still really cool and beautiful about that. And I'm hard pressed to think of another medium where creatives get to have that kind of interpersonal interaction um, with an audience and to kind of develop a group that can follow their stories and their art over time. But gosh, we got to get over the COVID <laughs> stuff first. That's crucial. That's crucial. Yeah.
0: For
1: sure. I was kind of a newer um I've lived in Houston maybe like 4 years now, so I'm not from here. Yeah. Um, but I've gone to I volunteered at Comic Palooza. I think it's oh. maybe 2 years now. Oh, sick. Um, but That's that wonderful. was like my first time ever going to anything like that. Mm-hmm. And it and it really is like it's so much fun to just mm-hmm. like talk to people and kind of hear people you know talk about the work that they've made Mm. um yeah it it really is like a unique experience
2: oh yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, i think when you're when you're around people who are passionate about things man that's just infectious right Mm -hmm. and the fact that you would volunteer your time to like help support that and to connect man how cool that says so much about you janine like that's a really neat thing
1: it was fun but i i don't want to seem like i'm super selfless because i thought oh it's probably, it's a good way to spend my time instead of doing something else.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We're human beings. Our motivations are manifold, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that's cool. Yeah. It'll be fun to have that day again. It's a really great show.
0: I was just thinking, I've never volunteered, but I've been to several <laughs> comic palaces. Yeah, yeah. And other uh, anime conventions and mm-hmm. just, I miss that so much.
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, it's cool. I, I like that different cons have tried virtual shows this year. I, I think it's nice to try to keep some of that alive. But as we talked about earlier with Zoom, there's, there's no replacing the real thing, right? It can be a stopgap, but the real thing's so good.
0: For real. Um, let's see, I'm trying to think of what uh, <laughs> the next question is. <laughs> uh, Janine, you, get, you got
1: anything? Yeah, I did. I wanted to um, on your uh, like website. Yeah, you had like just kind of like a short intro, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know. Did do, do you want me to read it and then, <laughs> or <laughs> I don't want to like read your own words.
2: Oh uh, well, yeah, um, yeah. No, please feel free because I don't have it up in front of me, okay. and it's been a, it's been a day or more okay. since I've taken yeah. a look back at it.
1: I was just, I read it uh, the other day and it like, I don't know if I started crying, but I feel like I was going to start crying, but I don't want to talk about myself too much, but maybe that just, I just thought it was really nice, Um, but so it just says like, hey, I'm Ben, I live in Texas with your wife and your three kids. And you're a cartoonist and educator in the Houston area and that your big desire in life is to creatively encourage understanding. Mm -hmm. And then you uh, said uh, why I believe that we create because we're made in the image of a boundless God using our gifts to reinterpret and retrace the wonder and the grit of being fully humbly human. Mm -hmm. Um, And the trick is how to do that well. And that's what we'll be exploring here with some Mm -hmm. art some thoughtful riffing and some analysis of what's good in the wider world of storytelling. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, I thought that was really great. So, um, but did you have anything to kind of add about that? I know you mentioned like, uh, creatively encouraging understanding. Is there anything specific uh, about that?
2: Yeah. So I was challenged a couple of years ago to make a, um, basically articulate like a vision for life, if that makes sense, like a life purpose, And my wife and I have also done this recently for our family. Like what, what do we want to be here for? You know, what is our success criteria for the time that we hit the grave? And I think for my life, one thing I really value is encouragement. Um, like in its literal sense, like putting courage into something like speaking life and energy, uh, into something. And, um, and, and I, I value understanding because when people from different perspectives can connect, um, really good things happen. Community is built, animosity diminishes, uh, redemption can occur. Uh, there's restoration in there, in those waters, you know? So um, I think for myself, that's one thing I try to do as a teacher is uh, create, like foster environments where understanding can occur, not just with the content, but between students and their worldviews. And I think the stories that have gripped me the most have also been ones that have created that for me. Um this is one that I've been sharing a little bit recently, and uh, in, it I just I kind of interesting I guess in the light of, of being in an area that's conservatively religious, you know, um, as a Christian, that faith does root me and anchor me. Um, and I had a student a few years ago who just kind of profoundly changed me um, because she was um, she was a freshman and she was an out lesbian, and in our class in our high school class we had uh, a, a project where students could present on a change they want to see in the world. It was fairly broad-based, right? You know, they could speak about something that was important to them. And I'll never forget how she created a presentation where she talked about seeing an episode of Good Luck Charlie on the Disney Channel. And it was an episode where some of um, some of the, character, the main character's friends came over, and that character happened to have two moms, right? Really small thing. Caused some controversy for Disney at the time. But for my student, seeing that on just a regular show that she watched made her feel like I'm okay, right? Like I'm normal. I am seeing myself in the stories that I enjoy and that helps me be at peace with who I am. And as she shared that with, with our class and with me, that just rung a bell about how important representation is to people, to feel seen and to feel loved and to feel heard. And um, and, and I think there was an element of how I, how I understood how to approach people with the love of god that got unlocked from that presentation if that makes sense she helped me to see it from a different angle and so she created some understanding for me and that was the magic sauce right there right like that's that's what we really want to get out of the classroom is not just you know i'm the teacher i'm a delivery machine you kids take it in but like where we can positively affect each other and even i the educator can be challenged and transformed so um I want that environment. I want to be part of that environment. Um, I want my stories to be able to do that for people to introduce concepts that maybe they weren't expecting and to disarm them with the narrative and give them something new that they can grapple with, or um or my classrooms where or I and other students can come in and kind of lay down our burdens a little bit and just um and and just get something positive out of that interaction and be pushed a little bit closer to that image of God um that that He longs for us to be fully restored to and reconciled with. So yeah. I hope I'm living out what I say on the website, you know, as I do that. Um, I think there are days that I don't do that well, but, um, but when it, when it does work well, when those pieces come together, then that's, that's irreplaceable.
1: Um. So one question we've kind of been asking people that we've been interviewing is um, if you had to define art, um, mm-hmm. kind of how would you do that? And there's no wrong or right answer. It's just, yeah. You know,
2: your
1: thoughts.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think art is, any purposeful artifact that a human creates to record their experience and create some understanding. Uh, and maybe the intent is to create an understanding through shock or through provocation. maybe it's to create an understanding through comfort uh, maybe it's to create an understanding through um, through irony and juxtaposition. But I think if, if a human makes something and they're trying to, to communicate their perspective for someone else to interact with, and to be broadened a little bit, I think that's art. And uh, I think that's, I think there are specific mediums that, that happens through quite a lot. But then I think you know of, of that Twitter account, um, you know, art or not, right? Where like someone's tweeting something and they're like, hey, art or not? Is this art or not? And then art or not will be like, oh, this is art. This like thread is art. <laughs> um, so I, I think because it's so flexible and tough to pin down, it almost seems like one of those things where you know it when you see it. But at the end of the day, it's just being purposeful about sharing something um, and trying to get someone to see something new uh, from your vantage point and being courageous to do that. Usefully, that definition also lets me avoid defining if something is good art or bad art. So hooray, <laughs> get off free.
1: I know like on your website, it also stated that you um, like were in a correspondence course for like for comic makers. Yeah. Um, so kind of what was that? Was it like kind of just explaining how to make comics or what was that experience
2: like it was cool um i don't know if it still occurs now but frank santoro is a cartoonist from pittsburgh and he also was a, a fine artist um who worked with uh, uh fr- i think francisco clemente is the painter's name um but frank makes uh, comics that look like, so, like almost like a first draft in your sketchbook if that makes sense he's not fussy with the line rendering it's very open and colorful um and uh and very inviting that way but um frank offered a correspondence course where he basically taught his process of making comics through a fine arts lens and through creating comics pages through layering um objects over a geometrical grid to kind of create a cool artifact in and of itself like the comics page the physical product could be as much art as the cumulative story that your pages together would tell and so through frank's course you took it for i think about two months and um he would give you homework assignments and you do them and he'd like give you feedback and comment on them. And you create like a final 14 page comic that, uh, that he would then share through his um, comics workbook sites. So um, he was doing that pretty regularly for a couple of years. I don't know if they still offer that, but I think there's a little bit of community around that. that still exists in Pittsburgh through uh copacetic comics, which is the store that Frank um, works at along with bill Boiselle, shell and, uh, and through kind of some colleagues in Pittsburgh who are part of the art scene there. So it was a useful experience and, uh, and you know, really exposed me to a different way of making comics than like the sort of assembly line method that you would see from like Marvel or DC Comics. It was cool. Uh, and uh, and I think really enriching. So.
1: And um, as we kind of wrap up uh, the interview here, um, mm-hmm. kind of want to know like, what, what of your work do you want to kind of like shout out here? Yeah. Um, and you can say it like, on audio and then we'll also like record it and type it out and then we can also put it in like the podcast description when we get to that point when we when it's all
2: posted oh that's super cool y'all thank you so much that's excellent um well i think um for for young readers i've got a series of four small graphic novels called the magnificent makers and um they're about a group of high school kids who basically get themselves into problems and invent their way out. Uh, and each book has got like a hands-on project that the reader can replicate at home. So those Magnificent Makers books are uh, from Rosen Publishing, and they're they're available through Amazon and through Rosen directly. Um, Waking Life is the fantasy kind of graphic novel series that spun out of Windsor McKay's uh, Little Nemo. That uh, that I've been working on for the past few years, and that's probably best read as a series of digital issues that are available through Comixology or Kindle, and that's published by Comicer Press. And then coming up in uh, November, I'll be part of an anthology called Big Hype, <laughs> which is like a, a Shonen Jump-style um, uh, black and white magazine uh, that's going to be kickstarted, and I'll have a ten-page story in there. And so uh, that'll be announced probably in the next couple of weeks uh, or not announced. It's been announced, but it'll probably be a Kickstarter in the next few weeks and uh, I'll be beating the drum for it. And so that's, that's one that people can look out for is big hype, which will be coming in November of uh, 2020.
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, ben uh, are there any like final thoughts or, you know, closing thoughts you'd like to share?
2: Man um, nothing specifically. Thank you for taking time to let me speak at length god bless you for your patience <laughs> with such a long-winded fellow um i, I really appreciate you reaching out and uh, and giving me an opportunity to share and, and to let me get to know y'all a little bit better and your desires for for podcasting and sharing and creating and uh man just what a cool thing that you're uh, exploring this topic and sharing your findings with uh, with your fellows and you know, i pray that that leads to a good community um or increasingly good community for y'all and uh and yeah it's uh, i don't know it's a real privilege to be able to connect with other people around stuff that matters, and so you know I'm glad we we get to do that. And we get to take it seriously and to and to continue to to perpetuate that.
1: Thank you. And really you. quickly again, um, could you pronounce your last name?
2: Of course, yes, yes. It's it's human neck, like a human neck, okay, like, like a neck of a human. Um, which Ellis Island totally made that weird, and I don't know why they did it, <laughs> but that that's how we say it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Y'all have a great rest of your afternoon.
0: You
2: too. All right. It was a pleasure talking to you. Take care. Great day. You too. I
0: think that went really well.